This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. I'm Carol Masser. So we talked about New York City's COVID-19 positive test rate uh, over a seven-day period staying below a threshold that would trigger shutdown of schools. That's good. We did see groups representing U.S. doctors, nurses, and hospitals urging President Trump to share information about the administration's coronavirus response with President-elect Joe Biden and his transition team. We had Germany warning Angela Merkel uh, that Germany remains very serious, but there is some optimism that an economic recovery will gather pace once the pandemic is brought under control. Uh, There's a lot going on. Global cases, my meantime. They are topping 55.1 million when it comes to COVID-19 deaths, 1.33 million. Back with us for our daily virus update, Dr. David Levy. He's CEO of the healthcare company EHE Health, and he joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Levy, nice to have you back with us. How are things going? What are you seeing when it comes to the virus? Thanks so much, Carol. It's great to be back. Well, you know, we basically have around the rest of the country an explosion of cases, and they're creeping up in New York. Mm. We have some great uh, silver linings on the horizon with respect to both vaccines and uh, the advent of uh, antibody treatment, monoclonal antibody treatment. But in the meantime, from now until the end of the holidays in December, we've got to keep focused on what I call public health 101, masks, social distancing, testing, positive contact tracing and positive people quarantine. It's as basic and as simple as that, and it's the thing that's right at our hands to be able to do effectively. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we all know what it is, right? Social distancing and wearing masks. It gets tougher, though. I think it's fair to say that once everybody has to be inside, you can't be outside like you were maybe over the summer, correct? And I also do think that there's something now that we're, what, eight months into this, there's pandemic fatigue. And I think there are people who, who, you know, left brain, right brain. I understand this is what we need to do, but I'm exhausted. I'm tired of this. Yeah, so we're all exhausted. You know, we see it at our own company. We see it at our clients' uh, companies. Um, We see it everywhere. And all I can tell you, it's the role of leadership to get out there and to keep on pushing people to the finish line, pushing them to the finish line. We will get to the end of this. I am confident of that. This is going to start looking much, much better with the turn of the year. And we just have to keep on uh, strong right up to the end. And there's, there's no other answer for it, frankly, at the moment. Well, and it's interesting that you say that, too, um, at a time when I just read a headline kind of leading into you about uh, doctors, nurses, hospitals urging the current administration to share information about uh, the White House's coronavirus response with President-elect Joe Biden's transition team. How do you, as someone who understands this virus in the medical community, understand the frontline workers who are constantly putting their lives at risk and watching these cases that are, you know, increasing around the country, around the world, How important is it that this transition, just when it comes to COVID-19, be smart, go well, and that there are no laps, right? That we just kind of are as seamless as possible. Well, just to give people perspective on what we're looking at with respect to the advent of vaccines and antibodies, 
you're talking about two specific uh, treatments, a vaccine which creates active immunity, which have focused just on the vulnerable population. And when we're looking at 90 to 95 percent efficacy, you're talking about bringing down the entire lethality of this epidemic just by focusing on the vulnerable population to somewhere not that much different than generalized influenza. Hmm. And that's without herd immunity. It's just focusing on the vulnerable, vulnerable people. The same thing with uh, anti. Uh, same thing with monoclonal antibodies. This is an antiviral therapy which has about a 70% reduction in admission rates for folks who are at risk, namely vulnerable populations. That can bring the case fatality, the lethality of this epidemic down significantly to be just a little bit above uh, one and a half times a general flu epidemic or a little bit, a little bit higher. So the idea of getting these two new therapies or these two new strategies to vulnerable, vulnerable populations relates to two things. One is obviously supply, then distribution and access. And if we don't have all of that seamlessly coordinated, we're going to miss an enormous opportunity to significantly drop fatality. That, by the way, is without getting into the whole distribution of and the ramping up of testing, uh, masks, and, and PPE, which is basically back to the you know public health 101 issues. But boy, with these two new therapies coming down the mm-hmm. pike, if we are not seamlessly coordinated, we can lose a major opportunity to have some serious impact, Carol. If this was a baseball game, where are we in terms of innings? Seven. Oh, that's positive. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, there could be extra innings, though, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but <laughs> we're going to have a rough seventh and eighth. Okay. But uh, and I say that to the end of December. But I, I really believe that as these things come online, we're going to see a, a really a significant change. And 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 honestly, yeah. I, I don't see how we can start enforcing some of this masking more seriously across the country as as well. Should with, we have know, a mandate? Should we have a mandate come down from from the federal uh-huh. government? Uh, there is no downside, in my view, to a mask mandate. I mean, I, I just it, mm. it, 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 this is not rocket science. Uh, this is proven. Uh, you can see the numbers. Some people project perhaps 80, 90 percent reduction in spread just by wearing masks. This should be a no-brainer. It's absolutely, and this is not economic shutdown. Right. This is basically just putting on a mask. Uh, you know, I think it's a patriotic thing to do, quite candidly. Yeah, no, 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 I get it. It's funny, too. And we've all had conversations uh, at home at work about how it's just become kind of so normal for so many of us. And I think if you've been in one of these major cities where you've seen the impact of it, uh, it's like putting on a seatbelt when you get into a car. You know, it's interesting. In New York, uh, it's not an issue. Everybody wears a mask. Everybody gets it. And and frankly, I think it's because of the horrific spring we had. And, you know, one in 350 New Yorkers died of COVID. People get that. They understand that. It was over 10 times out of 9-11. So we wear masks. No problem. We get it. I just want to talk to you a little bit more about COVID-19, Dr. Levy, because I did feel like you know, you gave us a little bit of a timeline and not a little bit. You gave us, you know, saying we're in the seventh inning, uh, if this was a baseball game, but you said the seventh and eighth innings are going to be pretty tough. But the difference between now and let's say a few months ago, perhaps, or at the beginning of this pandemic, is that the vaccine developments that we've made progress? Yeah, for sure. The vaccine, as well as the uh, new um, antiviral medications, the monoclonal and polyclonal antibodies, uh, one of which was approved last week. 
So uh, that's been basically a, a story that hasn't been told enough, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a very significant impact, we believe. Why is that so important in addition to the vaccines? Well, um, to have uh, a, a drug that you can give when you're just mildly ill or moderately ill, it's kind of like an antibiotic when you show up to the bacteria, uh, when you show up to the hospital with a bacterial pneumonia, you get a shot of penicillin yeah. and you don't have to get admitted to the hospital. Well, this is kind of like the same thing. It's an, effu- an infusion but it really takes down the chance of being admitted with a serious illness. And, and frankly, that's exactly what President Trump got from Regeneron and mm-hmm. exactly what Governor Christie got from, the, uh, from Lilly. So these medications are highly effective and when targeted at vulnerable populations can have a very significant impact. And you the have to do it early, like, correct? Yeah, mild or moderate symptoms in vulnerable populations. The, the problem with that strategy isn't actually its effectiveness, it's, it's uh, supply and mm-hmm. distribution. Uh, and we're actually probably going to see in the next few weeks and months, we'll see infusion centers pop up all over the place. Right, exactly. Well, that, that begs to that bigger question of the supply chain, whether it's the vaccine or whether it's these antiviral treatments, right? Uh, these are not things I know the vaccine makers, the big pharma companies, I mean, they certainly have been working towards this. They've even started manufacturing it. But this is going to be huge, the logistical side of manufacturing it and then getting it out, the vaccine or even these viral antiviral treatments. Exactly. And that's back to the issue of why you need such close coordination between mm-hmm. uh, the outgoing and the incoming administrations. I mean, this thing has to be seamlessly coordinated. Otherwise, people will die. No question. All right. One thing I did want to ask you, too, is what are you seeing when it comes to people coming in and and doing some of those preventive routine treatments? Have you seen an increase in people feeling more comfortable about coming back to the doctor's office? Yeah, we provide preventive health services around the country. Right. And uh, what we and for for large employers and for for their employees and, and spouses and families. And uh, we actually were caught by surprise how engaged people were once we reopened after the lockdown because people have begun to understand that uh, that much of the comorbid com- uh, conditions affiliated with uh, uh, COVID-19 can kill you. And those are all lifestyle illnesses, mm-hmm. overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, and the like. Getting those things under control has meaningful impact in this uh, pandemic. And so we strongly believe that that's a great reason to get back in. People are figuring out that they're not going to get COVID at their local hospital or their well-managed doctor's office uh, because appropriate precautions are being taken. And reducing comorbidities is a hugely advantageous thing to do. And it's something that everybody can do today without, uh, without any big dispute on whether there's going to be a good outcome. Dr. Levy, that's a great thing to do. I just want to, because we just only have about 40 seconds left here. I just want to follow on that. I mean, what is one thing that we could change or mandate? Because we do know that, you know, taking care of your health, wellness, weight, these are things that really impact your outcome in any health situation. How do we change that? How do we change the trajectory and the trend line? Just quickly. Well, in the end, I mean, you can't force people to do what they don't want to do. Uh, I think that, that frankly, uh, educating the public about how important lifestyle is uh, is probably the most important thing. You know, I call it, you know, COVID compresses time. You're overweight, you're diabetic, you're hypertensive. You know, you may not have 10 or 15 or 20 years anymore to hang around and wait till those things impact your end organs, your organs. You know, this could hit you right away. So I think the most important thing is education and awareness and getting people to know and to understand that they can do something about it.
Yeah, it's a big issue, no doubt about it, uh, especially when you look at things like the diabetes numbers in the United States. Uh, Dr. Levy, thank you so much. Nice to check in with you. Dr. David Levy, CEO of EHE Health, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, you've watched this company's videos. I know I've tweeted out several. I actually went down a rabbit hole today watching them all over again because I've watched Spot the Dog Running, Cheetah, Wildcast. There's also Atlas, the Dynamic Humanoid. We're talking about the cutting edge of a uh, company that puts out those robotics. You know who they are. We're talking about Boston Dynamics. They've really become part of our pop culture, which is about, it looks like, to enter a next chapter. Sarah McBride writes about it uh, for Business Week, venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News, and she joins us on the phone in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber. Jill, how much time do you spend watching Boston Dynamics videos? They, they creep me out a little bit. So <laughs> yes, not that's that fair. And, and is it a rabbit hole or like a robot hole? It's a robot um, hole. Nice. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, these uh, videos of Boston Dynamics robots have been sort of internet sensations for basically as long as they've been making those robots. And they can do some interesting things like climb stairs yeah. and open doors, heavy things. And, you know, in, you know, in Asia, you see them during the pandemic and they sort of, you know, bark instructions at people to stay away from each other and that kind of stuff. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the interesting thing that Sarah brings out here is like, you know, for all of those great Internet um, videos and everything like, yeah, there's a there's a kind of a lack of a business model underlying it. Yeah. And that's actually led to some turmoil, not only at uh, Boston Dynamics and, and that sort of gets to uh, the heart of the story because uh, Boston Dynamics and this whole division have actually been up for sale and they might catch some big money. Um, how much money and, and who's buying, Sarah? Well, um, apparently Hyundai Motor Corp has been talking to SoftBank about buying Boston Dynamics and that would be a price tag uh, of around a billion dollars, I'm told, which sounds like a lot for what for many years has just been a vanity project, but Boston Dynamics says it's getting to the point where its robots can do some pretty practical things. And um, Hyundai actually has a walking car division. If you thought the Boston Dynamics videos were terrifying, wait till you see some of the walking car videos. And so who knows? I think I saw that movie. It was called Transformers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it's like, but it's amazing too. Like I had my producer, um, Ariel Agami, he like went online too, because we were talking about the, the the robots, the humanoids that were cheering at a baseball game. Yeah, um, this summer, no human fans were allowed, but robot fans were allowed, and SoftBank owns a ton of robot companies, not just Boston Dynamics, so they mixed up some spot uh, dog robots from Boston Dynamics with some of their others and had them cheering on the sidelines, wearing baseball caps and uh, singing fan songs. <laughs> so that Eating hot pretty- dogs, having a beer. No, not so much. <laughs> It's really interesting but Sarah, for re- because, I mean, there are ahead, Sarah, some practical things that yeah. these robots can do, but the company says it's next generation of robots, which will handle logistics and work in warehouses are the ones that are going to be super practical. Mm-hmm. And those are called handle and do a lot of things which don't sound that tough, like taking boxes off of trucks and loading them onto pallets, but apparently are very complicated for the types of machines and factories to do now that's where they say they'll really shine so it 
interesting ingredient in all of this, Sarah, um, it, because, you know, if, if, if it seems like there's actually like a potential to, you know, make money just around the corner, um, why not stick with that? Why would, why, why would SoftBank look to unload this now? Well, SoftBank has had so many um, uh, challenges. I mean, we had that um, big cover story last year about some of the challenges they've been facing. WeWork has imploded. And uh, then this year with COVID, they were just in a position where they were trying to raise cash. They sold off a lot of businesses, including Arm. And so this was just one obvious place in their portfolio where it had been um, sucking uh, money out of SoftBank. It was costing them over $150 million a year just to run Boston Dynamics. So this was an obvious place to make a cut where they could uh, Worth mentioning there that also, yeah, yeah, worth mentioning there that SoftBank isn't the only owner that Boston Dynamics has had before before SoftBank. Who was it again, Sarah? Little-known company. Google, Google. (laughs) So same thing. Google was perfectly prepared to have a vanity project, and then a new CFO came in, started kind of putting financial controls on different parts of the company. It was part of Google X, that part of Google that does super cool cutting-edge projects, and she just said, nope, uh, we need to impose some financial discipline. So they got sold to SoftBank, and that was um, complicated and had to go through a review by the government because Boston Dynamics has very cutting-edge technology. In fact, the military used to pay for a lot of Boston Dynamics projects that stopped under Google and now if it sells again to another uh, non-U.S. entity, it would again have to be reviewed by the government. So it's a complicated deal. Sarah, one thing I want to ask you, I mean, this is a company that's been around for almost 30 years. I mean, and it does sell stuff. It does sell robots. But can it be a really successful company, uh, you know, and, and, and really become something? And almost, I think you end the story saying that, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for them to kind of become the Google of the robotics industry, or somebody has talked about it. We really don't have necessarily someone of this ilk out there. Yeah, robotics is a fascinating field with hundreds of startups and so many people trying to achieve dominance in, in the field. And um, they had owners who were content to let them just spend hundreds of millions of dollars researching the best types of robots. So arguably they are now in this very unusual position because they had owners who for a while didn't really care about um, how much money they were spending bankrolling Boston Dynamics. But the company was profitable in the past before Google uh, bought it, and it was doing more defense, military work, and it says it can be profitable again. And they certainly have the technological chops, so it could be a really interesting new chapter in their life. And I mean, Joel, you've got to get, I think you've got to get one of these dogs, I'm just saying. <laughs> Joel, well, you know, I got the real dog it? already. You got the it's, real dog. Maybe a cat. Definitely find it competitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the a, a ro- seventy-five thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, you may not. <laughs> a, a robotic cat sounds even creepier than a real cat. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the the the, uh, the other thing that I'll just point out in all of this is that there are other um, robotics companies that I find really interesting, like Fanuc is one in Japan yes. that 
um, does really like heavy equipment and stuff. So I actually think strategically for Hyundai, this is sort of a way of picking up a, a piece that, um, you know, if it's on the brink of having a, some breakthrough products, yeah. it could become sort of a crown jewel in the Hyundai uh, portfolio there. It's a really great point and a great story. Um, and I highly recommend everyone check it out at uh, Bloomberg.com. Sarah McBride, thank you so much. Venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. So in an upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks, it will be featured in the magazine. We're going to talk to one of this year's successful IPOs, which is up more than 100% since its debut as an ADR on the New York Stock Exchange in September. It's the company that has patented a synthetic version of the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms for use in treatment-resistant depression. We are delighted to welcome to Bloomberg Radio Compass Pathways Chairman, CEO, and co-founder George Goldsmith. He joins us on the phone overseas in Europe. George, it is so great to have you here with us. We've been talking about your company since it was featured in Business Week magazine. How are you? I'm doing well, Carol, and thank you so much for having me on this evening. Well, it's great, to, it's great to have you here, and what a year it's been, and what a year to go public. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit of, <laughs> about your company and, and how you came across this, because I do understand it's a pretty personal story. Um, Yes, it is a personal story. And I think that in, in many ways, so many interesting companies do form that way. And, and so from our point of view, we had a, our son really struggled with mental health issues when he went to university, like far too many young people do. We thought, how hard could this be? You know, there are good treatments and therapies. Yet the more he encountered, the more difficult it was for him to be recognizable to us with the side effects. And it didn't really help him. So we then started talking to lots of different people, doing our own research. My co-founder and wife, uh, Ekaterina Maneskaya, is a doctor. And, and in her own research, she stumbled across uh, psilocybin and psilocybin research. And we became really intrigued by this. Um, the other thing that happened simultaneously is the more people we talked about our own challenges that we were facing, the more we heard from others about their challenges. And these would be long-term friends who we'd known for quite a while, but they never felt comfortable sharing their own challenges until we did. And that really led us to, to understand that almost everybody has a story of, you know, how the current system isn't quite helping enough people well enough. And that really inspired us to look at this research. We saw its promise and, uh, and the issue is how do we bring it to patients, not just bring it into the next journal article. And journal articles are critically important, but they're necessary, but not sufficient to bring this to patients. And that's really our commitment. Well, and I do, you know, it's interesting. I was doing some reading on this and that my understanding is for those, you know, patients and, and individuals who, who deal with and, and suffer uh, depression, that the existing treatments only really work for about 70% of patients, leaving as many as 90 million still struggling around the world. I think that's some World Health Organization. So it is a huge, and I hate to put it in business terms, but we are Bloomberg. It's a huge market. <laughs> uh, it is. I hate Forgive to me. great markets of suffering. But, I know. You know Forgive I, me. It is a huge market, right, in that sense. And so there's a tremendous amount of suffering. And I think we've been pretty good at developing tools to ameliorate 70% of that. But the 30% is quite quite difficult because what happens is with each new treatment, those people actually have less and less likelihood to be helped by what's next. And there's been a very large studies in the U.S. by the National Institute of Mental Health 
And, and we really have documentation for that. So if we have the opportunity to do something unique here, mm-hmm. which is a single dose. So what we do is we provide a very high dose of psilocybin in a carefully controlled setting under supervision by specially trained therapists. So this isn't anything that anyone would do at home. And um, patients listen to a special soundtrack and they're really supported through this process. And what happens is that afterwards, for many patients, they experience an immediate reduction in depression that actually lasts for quite a while. And what our research is really looking at is, well, who benefits? Not everyone. Mm -hmm. So who doesn't? And what separates the people who benefit for a few weeks from the single dose for a few months and people who actually have even longer experiences? So we've went to the FDA and actually we're operating now in 10 countries doing clinical research, 21 research sites. And we're really looking at how do we do the real deep research to generate the information and insight we need to go to what's the next phase for us, which would be phase three trials. And we'll be reporting out on our phase two trials about a year from now. So we've been really excited about the progress. Yeah, and I should say that the FDA has named your experimental treatment, quote, a breakthrough therapy, which is, you know, really wonderful to kind of get that acknowledgement. But it also means now you've got to do more rigorous, more risk adverse testing. It's a lot of pressure, I'm assuming. And you've got to make sure you're working with the right scientists, the best scientists, the best clinical trials, correct? Well, absolutely. And and absolutely. And then even more so, right? Because obviously there's a history here. um, And Mm -hmm. what we're looking to do is the highest quality, rigorous, most rigorous research. The first port of call for us was actually, even before we formed the company, to speak with regulators, payers, just to understand what did they think about this? And what we were really struck by in, in all the conversations and the breakthrough therapy designation is, a, I think, a perfect example of this. The problem is so big. That's what you said. You know, there's such a huge amount of suffering here. The tools we have are good for some, but not good enough. Right. They just saw that this is a promising. So what we found is that a huge amount of support, but we really have to get this right. We have to get it right for patients, for their families and society. Just got about a minute and then I've got to do some news and then we'll come back. But how big of a market opportunity do you think is there for Compass Pathways? Just quickly. Well, I think that what we see in this is that obviously there are about 90 million people suffering from so-called treatment-resistant depression. But to be clear, this isn't people. This is not a group of people who are resisting treatment. This is a group of people right. for whom our treatments don't work. And so perhaps you know I think this is really really important. But that's just the start because really what we're looking at is working on areas of mental health where people get caught in patterns of negative thinking or patterns of obsessive thinking. That happens in other areas like anxiety or OCD or other things. And we're really curious about how could this mechanism of a high dose of psilocybin therapy yield benefit for other classes of people who aren't helped enough. So is this like a potentially a multi-billion dollar drug potential? Just quickly, just got about 15 seconds here. Um, Well, I think that it is potential to have it be a therapy. It's really important that it's not a drug. It's a drug that's given in 
combination with psychological right. support. So, and that's the critical bit. Hey, so before I move on, though, you did say, and I thought this was a really important distinction, George, as you said, it's not a drug, it's a potential therapy. Having said that, I do think, you know, our listeners are curious um, about how big that market size might be. Anxiety disorders, depression, sure. the depression treatment market, it's expected to be something like $21 billion by 2025. So what's your expectation or thoughts on this? So a few things. One is uh, I appreciate your digging into this. So just to give you some, and your listeners some perspective, um, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, just depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the U.S., the annual cost of depression is forecast to be about $200 billion per year. And a large number of that is direct costs of outpatients, inpatient medical services, pharmaceutical services. And the number you referred to is largely in the pharmaceutical space. Now, what we know is that about a third of patients, as you mentioned, simply aren't helped. And the third of patients that aren't helped actually are about three to four times more expensive, two to three, depends on kind of where where you're doing the data. Um, than patients who are helped by these medicines. Um, And so we have not only a very large group of patients who aren't helped, but also those are the most expensive patients. And so if we could make a difference in their lives, I think there's a huge opportunity to really um, develop a new model of care for them. And this is what's so interesting about what we're doing. It is a therapy, right? It's a single dose under supervised circumstances Uh, with preparation and then some follow-up afterwards. And what's really unique about this, uh, they did some really fascinating work at Johns Hopkins where a lot of this research was uh, reborn Mm -hmm. uh, over 10 years ago. One of the questions they asked patients who had gone through this, and they asked this question six weeks after this experience. They said, how meaningful would you say this experience was in your life? Personally meaningful. And people... We're given, you know, is it the most meaningful, the top five, you know, and so over 70% said the single experience was one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their life. Right. So you can't, you can't really put, you can't, you can't. It was the most. <laughs> you can't, right. No, no, no. And and I wish you we were in person because you could see me smiling because you can't put a value on it. And I have a sister who works in this area. So I've kind of grown up learning about this. And I agree that there's an unbelievable cost by not, you know, helping out this sector of our population. And also it's invaluable in terms of they basically get their lives back. Having said that, you kind of evaded my answer. So is this like a, a multi-billion dollar potential treatment or tens well, of... Bi- I think it is a multi Yes, I think it is multi-billion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've had... So, but again, that's if the trials work. Well, let's talk uh, about that because that's a big deal. I mean, listen, we're all learning about the drug process, right? Because of the drug approval process, yeah. because of COVID. What challenges does, does the U.S. present? What regulatory hurdles still remain? And I, I do wonder if you're following kind of the playbook from marijuana, kind of prescription first, recreational second. How are you thinking about it? Not at all. Okay. No, no we're, we're really thinking about the huge unmet need there is for patients. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, what we're really focused on is access. And that means approval by Medicaid, by, you know, insurers. So from day one, we've been really focusing on making sure that if this, in fact, is successful in trials, people have access to it. And that means working with insurers, even in the design of clinical trials, to make sure they have the evidence that right. says, hey, this 
for this patient population. So that's super important to us. It's a different model than a recreational model. You're going to have to come back because I want to talk more. We still have a few minutes, but I just want to squeeze in some things. (laughs) When when did you recognize the potential in this space? Was it after your son or was it when you started doing some digging? Like what was the thing that you just said, kind of the aha moment? (laughs) Well, the aha moment was being awakened in February 2013 by Katya, my wife, who was busy doing medical research in her sleepless nights Mm -hmm. uh, as a doctor. And she said, I came across this thing called psilocybin. Um, It's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. You were in the 60s and 70s. What do you think of this? (laughs) Say what, honey? (laughs) Finding this. and, I, you know, obviously I had grown up in that time, so I was familiar with these things. But it was just a whole yeah. world that I had completely forgotten about from that time. So listen, just got about 45 seconds left here. Why synthetic yeah. um, psilocybin? And I'm just curious how you produce super it. Super easy. And just quickly, yeah, it's sorry. Super easy. Um, we need to, it's a medicine. So we need to know exactly what patients are receiving, what the dose is. It has to be the same quality every place on the planet that it's given. So that's why you have to use synthetic. It's the regulatory path forward. It's one where we always know there are no impurities, that people get exactly what it says on the tin. And then we can do controlled research. So it's super important that in a medical setting, we use synthesized psilocybin. And that's something that we've spent a lot of time developing and working with regulators on both sides of the Atlantic to make sure it's the highest purity and genuinely a medicine with evidence. I'll just end, the difference between a drug and, an ev- and a medicine is mm-hmm. evidence. And so we're creating a medicine from this, which is psilocybin, our proprietary form of that, right. and then with the evidence that works. Got it. George, we have to go. Please come back. Uh, I'd love to learn more. George Goldsmith and also listen to more of the, tri- the trials. George, of course, of Compass Pathways. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Back with us is Anne Maletti, head of active equity at Wells Fargo Asset Management. They've got roughly $607 billion in assets under management. Anne is back with us on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, Anne, good to have you here with us. Um, how's it going? It's getting cold, Carol. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Darn winter. I know, right? How did that happen? It's kind of dark almost already here in New York. How are you guys doing, though, uh, with the virus? I know out Midwest and, and parts of the country, it's been pretty tough. It has been a little bit tougher here. Um, yeah. Clearly, the weather changing has had an impact. But so far, um, most of us are staying strong and healthy, and, and we're trying to do that the best we can with this cold weather. Well, I'm glad to hear that that you guys are doing okay. Um, having said that, I do wonder if at all your market outlook, your market sentiment has changed at all, considering here we are in the last week and a half, we've had a big development from Pfizer, a big development from Moderna. And uh, my last guest at the top of our show uh, talked about uh, 
the medical world and saying that we're kind of in the maybe seventh inning when it comes to the virus, but the seventh and eighth innings, they're going to be really rough. Um, I just wonder how all of this maybe impacts your visibility when it comes to investing. Yeah, it's a really good question because I do think we've we've gotten some of the best news we could have gotten all year with the Pfizer Pfizer and Moderna news, but we do have this little bit of time now where we're waiting for the vaccine, and so it does feel like there's a chance that we could have an air pocket in the both in the economy and in the market as we're waiting for the vaccines to get distributed and. You know, we do see that more um, states are starting the shutdowns again. We have businesses closing again. And so that has a real impact and certainly more people getting sick. Um, I think we're going to see the effects of that play out into the market. But as we both know, the market is focused on the long term and on the recovery. And we have seen a pretty sharp recovery so far. And, you know, if you get the vaccine out in masses by spring, that recovery can really continue. And I think the economy is going to be in really good shape in 2021 and certainly will have easy comparisons. And that's why I think you see the majority of strength. Well, yeah, right. I mean, to some extent, we start to have a little bit of visibility. So at this point, you know, we've talked a lot about market rotation. We've talked about the value names again. I mean, are those parts of the market that you're interested in looking at, think investors should be considering? Certainly our managers were paying close attention to the cyclical recovery very early on. And as you said, Carol, we've seen some of that play out. We saw the gap between growth and value, you know, a historic gap um, start to narrow. And now I think we're on more of a level playing field Certainly, technology is trading at a premium, but it's demanding that premium because it's providing growth in a world that where growth is still scarce. But value and cyclical stocks, there, there still is, there still are a lot of attractive names there. But you have to be choosy, and the reason why I say that is, you want to avoid companies that have weak balance sheets. Um, certainly companies that are not well competitively positioned because the economy is rapidly changing. And we're seeing that through this pandemic. The economy has shifted more to digitalization and almost in every aspect in, in our lives, even within manufacturing. And so companies need to be able to invest in the future and to stay alive, quite honestly, and yeah. to remain competitive. And so that's really what our managers are focused on. There's an intense focus on balance sheets, on cash flows, and management teams that are capable of leading their companies. You know, what's interesting too, Anne, and I think about this, I've thought about this a lot, you know, after the financial crisis, that there was a point where you looked at a Citigroup at a dollar a share and you knew, okay, especially after we got through what happened to Lehman and we saw other companies, we saw at some point that no matter what, the government, the the Federal Reserve, like there were going to be a safety net to protect these companies, right? Because we couldn't let everything come undone. And I do feel like there's, it's not the same. It's not apples to apples. This isn't a financial crisis. But nonetheless, at some point, you know, we see it with central banks, global central banks. We see it with the U.S. Central Bank. We see it even with policymakers, and we'll see if we get another round of stimulus. But there is some understanding that we can't let everything come undone on Main Street or Wall Street. 
Right. You're absolutely right about that. I think we all know the airlines can't all go bankrupt. We can't have every industry at, you know, certain parts of every industry at risk. And there certainly are, you know, restaurants, hotels, that travel and leisure sector that really hasn't been able to come back in any strong way um, certainly has been challenged. And so I think you'll see some stimulus go toward those businesses and certainly hopefully to the small businesses that really have had to bear the brunt of this pandemic. So where don't you want to be right now? Where would you just say, hey, guys, you're sitting down with your best friends, you're having a glass of wine, and you're saying, don't even think about it. I think the areas that a lot of our managers are underweight, the index. And you could be having a glass of water. Um, You don't have to drink. You don't have to have alcohol. I'm just going to put that out there. Forgive me. I think people think I'm a wino. I'm not. I think all of us um, probably, you know, dip in a little bit more than we used to. It's been rough. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that, you know, our managers have been underweight energy. And mm-hmm. uh, I know that's a relatively small um, part of the benchmarks now, but it has been an, an industry that has been challenged, yeah. um, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Still our worst performing um, group this year, down 40%. It's yes. just been slammed. Yes, although, you know, you've seen this strong yeah. resurgence yep. over the last couple of weeks, right? So, yep. you know, you might miss out on, on some of these surges, on these momentum rallies. And then we have been, um, our managers across the board have also been underweight banks as ah. well because of the interest rate pressures that right. will likely continue. Anne Maletti, always good to hear your voice. Take care, stay safe. Anne Maletti, Head of Active Equity, Wells Fargo Asset Management, uh, on the phone from Milwaukee. They've got about $607 billion in assets under management. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.